Imagine being arrested and charged for a pair of murders and one attempted murder in connection with two gangland shootings, but you weren't the person responsible. That was the case for an Ontario man who spent more than two years in jail suspected in a pair of 2017 killings linked to the criminal underworld. I'm Dave Breckenridge and this is 10-3. National Post senior reporter Adrian Humphreys joins me to discuss the slayings, how police zeroed in on suspects, and how one man was left holding the bag while the other two suspects skipped town. Don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So Adrian, what can you tell me about this big police investigation project, Scopa? What were they looking into? What crimes were they investigating? In early 2017, there was two quite alarming high-profile murders. The first was uh, north of Toronto in Vaughan when uh, a young woman was shot dead in a parking lot, but she, she wasn't the intended target. That became pretty obvious. Her boyfriend was the son of a known mobster named Diego Serrano and uh, had some profile. He was nicknamed uh, one of Canada's cocaine cowboys. Mm-hmm. While that investigation was underway, seven weeks later, there was another similar hit. And this was on the son of a very notorious Hamilton Mafia boss. The boss was named Dominic Musitano. The the kid was named Angelo Musitano. And it was remarkably similar to the first hit. The gunman looked similar. He had a similar tactic, similar technique, similar stance with the gun. And pretty early on, the uh, York Regional Police and the Hamilton Police Service thought they were probably uh, should swap notes and share notes on what was going on because there was clearly some link between the two. And uh, boy, were they ever right. As you say, in the in the case of the first murder, it was believed that the intended target was the son of Canada's cocaine cowboy. What was the significance of the killing of Angelo Musitano? Well, the Musitano crime family is extremely notorious one in Ontario and, and particularly in Hamilton. It's one of sort of three significant mafia crime families. And we're talking about the real deal, old school mafia clans. The Mositano family was responsible for a hit on uh, the most powerful godfather in Hamilton, and not, you know, decades before, and that John Papalia, and and was involved in the hit and uh, Niagara crime lord. So they made a lot of enemies along the way. In many ways, it wasn't surprising that someone would target the family. The interesting thing about Angelo Musitano was that he was quite recently sort of retiring from Mm. the underworld by all accounts. He'd actually become a Christian and was attending a a men's Bible study and was apparently taking it quite seriously. In fact, the day of his murder, the bound copies of a book in which he contributed a testimony about his past life and his conversion and how he, you know, gave his life to God actually arrived and uh, he never got a chance to see it. So as you say, the police in Hamilton and the police in York region realized they should probably be communicating that they may have something similar on their hands. Was it just the fact that, you know, the killer looked similar, you know, had a similar stance when he fired his weapon? Was there anything else that kind of led police to that decision that these murders are definitely connected? So while they would have suspected fairly early on, probably almost instantaneously, that they may be linked, the link became absolutely certain due to a piece of very good fortune. Now, solving mafia murders in Canada is not usually very easy. Mm-hmm. There's layers of secrecy. You know, we all know about Omerta and the secrecy of their organization. And, 
the professionalism often of the people involved. But in this case, Angela Musitano's neighbors are a nosy bunch. <laughs> Not only do they also have a lot of them have security cameras on their street, yeah. they just keep watch over the street. Like it's like neighborhood watch, you know, on steroids. So a couple of days after they had a neighbor had a, there was a suspicious car parked on the street. He didn't recognize. He called police. And it turned out to be the car that the gunman had, you know, used as a getaway vehicle after the shooting. And then another neighbor said to the police, you know, I've seen some suspicious activity over the days before. And not only did she have like descriptions of the people and the makes and models of cars, she'd actually photographed the license plates of them. So they had a license plate to run. And when they ran that, it came back to a man named Jibril Abdallah. And all of a sudden, they instantly have a suspect. When they did a forensic investigation on the hitman's getaway car, they found a DNA hit to a guy that was already in the National Data Bank, Crime Data Bank, a guy named Michael Cudmore. So now they have two suspects. Mm -hmm. And then watching that leads them to the third, Daniel Tomasetti. But where the York region stuff comes in is that one of the vehicles that the license plate had been photographed of was a black Honda Civic. And York police found a black Honda Civic was also involved in the uh, shooting of Serrano that ended up killing the innocent bystander Mila Marberry. So they knew they were linked because the same car was used as a getaway vehicle by the same, presumably same gunman. So we get a license plate hit and a DNA hit. So they believe that there's those two individuals involved, Michael Cudmore and Jabril Abdallah, and then they that leads them to Daniel Tomasetti. Where does the investigation take them next? How do they zero in on these guys? How do they wind up getting these individuals in their radar? And who gets arrested first in this group? Well, the other big piece of investigatory breakthrough that the police had was they found a GPS tracker on Angela Musitano's pickup truck. Wow. And so these are the things that were are often used to track taxi cabs or delivery vehicle fleets and so forth. And you can buy them in the consumer markets at spy shops and so forth. And they found one on his pickup truck and they traced it to a spy shop in Markham, Ontario, north of Toronto. And they spoke to the owner and got the business records uh, on, on who bought it and what other trackers that account bought. And they ended up buying seven, eight, nine of these things. And uh, when police traced those, they really realized how much preparation the killers had done while they're preparing to hit Angela Musitano. They found a tracker on Angela Musitano's mother's Cadillac. They found a tracker on his wife's minivan. They found uh, trackers that had been used to track his brother, Pat Musitano, who was sort of the family boss after their father died. Mm -hmm. Another one to track the cousin. Another one to track a Hell's Angel member who was a family associate uh, by description of police. And there was other trackers that they'd never even found. So this was quite a, an involved operation. The police were then able to compare phone records and who had conversations and used phones and where those phones were in relation to cell towers at the time the trackers were bought. And so this began this process where police compared phone usage to messages and events and other points uh, in the investigation to really trace the movements of these three guys to start building a case. They were making some pretty good headway, but there was a, you know several pieces of evidence that they just couldn't quite hammer down to lead to arrest in time. And so they, they used another technique, and that's where they sort of used the media. Over the course of the investigation, they called two very large, splashy press conferences. And 
you know, they're presented as we want to present, you know, in transparency, present the public an update on the investigation. Mm -hmm. But really, it was a case of, they call it tickling the wires. They wanted to stimulate conversation amongst suspects by presenting information that would push them to talk. And then in the meantime, of course, the police had wiretaps and investigative methods, uh, surveillance and so forth to observe the reaction. And what kind of reaction did they get? Well, they got it, you know, not maybe quite as um, as red flaggy as they probably had hoped. The first time they just said, we're looking for a black Honda Civic. And uh, anyone who owns a black Honda Civic in the province of Ontario can ex- anticipate police visit to talk about it. So that gave them the ability to then go talk to uh, Jabril Abdallah without laying all their cards on the table to say how we know you have this car. They just pretended it was one of hundreds of interviews mm-hmm. and to discuss that with him. Another press conference actually released a photograph of one of the suspects buying the trackers at the mall in Markham. That had um, a much more immediate impact in that, according to allegations filed in court, unproven allegations, someone, uh, Daniel Thomas said his relative's phone, then searched for news on the press conference, then searched for the name of a prominent criminal defense attorney. Hmm. The next day, the same phone was used to look for more information on the case, and then for the definition of conspiracy. And then, I think three days after that, Daniel Thomas said he boarded a plane and flew to Mexico. Daniel Thomas said he fled the country. Where's Michael Cudmore in this position here? Well, Michael Cudmore was one step ahead of uh, Daniel Tomasetti in that regard, because he flew to Mexico not that long after the shooting. Police say he's the trigger man, Cudmore. And if that's the case, then he really screwed up by killing this poor innocent woman. You know, as bloodthirsty as uh, the mobsters can be, they don't want that. Now, partly because it's bad for business. Uh, The amount of outrage and the public concern uh, over it was over the top. So they would have been upsetting to the public. It it would have been aggravating for the police, but it also would have been aggravating for anyone who may have hired him or ordered him or asked him to do it. So he took off to Mexico as well. Mm -hmm. So now we have three suspects, two of them out of police jurisdiction, whereabouts unknown, and police are now wondering what they should do next. And so the last of the suspects, Jabril Abdallah, is left in Canada. The two other people police believe to be involved have fled the country. What happens to Jabril? Jabril Abdallah has ended up, uh, he ends up being arrested and uh, charged with two murders and attempted murder. And a huge press conference is called. And uh, the chiefs of police and deputy chiefs of multi-jurisdictional task force gathers. And they have large posters saying, uh, Michael Cudmore, wanted. Daniel Tomasetti, wanted. Jabril Abdallah, arrested. So they got one of the three. And as it turns out, he was really the one which they had the least evidence on. He had the least involvement and uh, was the most tangential to the plot at hand. The two others, the alleged gunman and the alleged senior assistant or, or perhaps even boss, were nowhere to be found. So there's vehicles registered in his name. There's text communications of some kind between him and the others, or at least Tomasetti. What is he saying that justifies all of this? Jabril Abdallah, I spent some time talking to him. I got to know him a little bit. And he says that, yes, he knew Danny Tomasetti. He knew Michael Cudmore. He worked for them. Daniel Tomasetti was a high school buddy of his. He trusted him. Hmm. Daniel Tomasetti started a travel agency and hired 
Jabril Abdallah to help in that. He was his business card says sales manager. But then to make money, because, I mean, Jabril isn't an angel. He had been doing some low-level cocaine sales, mm-hmm. and that also helped the police investigation because it allowed them to arrest him for the drug sales and get his phone. But what was on that phone is really what sort of solidified what the charges were, and that's Google Map images of some of the target's surroundings. So they had reason to suspect it. The problem is they had no evidence he knew what was going on. And Jabril Abdallah says he had no idea what was going on. Yes, he was working for Michael and Cadmore, Daniel Thomas said, yes, he drove them around. Yes, he knew they were involved in crime, but he had no idea that it was violent, no idea that they were plotting murders, no idea that these were hits that were being allegedly planned and perpetrated. And he stuck to that very, very uh, firmly. And eventually, the prosecutors and the judge agreed. They believed it. Uh, The evidence wasn't there to suggest anything otherwise. After a very lengthy, sort of basically three-year fight, he was very recently uh, pled guilty to participating in a criminal organization. Mm -hmm. He says he wants to take responsibility for, for what he did do, but he can't plead guilty to what he didn't do. And what he didn't do, he says, was just have any knowledge, planning, or involvement in, in the two murder plots. And that may be the case. And, and he may have been cleared, pleaded guilty to a charge of participating in a criminal organization. But being accused of two gangland slayings has to have an impact on a person, right? Yes. The, to, to be falsely accused he was jailed for at least two years, right? He was he was awaiting trial. He was released on bail. Then his bail was revoked and he was sent back to jail. He has this cloud hovering over him that he's an accused killer. He has people on the inside who assume that, you know, the police got him. You know, there, here's the guy who killed Angelo Musitano and, and the son of Canada's cocaine cowboy. Like, what's going through his mind as he's in jail? Well, this is one of the things I found really fascinating was because Assuming he was as naive as he, he, he says he is and, and has been found to be, no one else believed it. And that meant the police, and that meant the guards in prison, and that meant fellow inmates. So he arrived, and he found himself at the center of quite the circus. He told me that jail guards were coming in because they wanted to look at him. And they were like sort of, you know, whistling and saying, ooh, you got some big cojones. And, <laughs> you know, you know some heavy hitters. And he was quite befuddled. He didn't know who the Musitanos were. By that point, he had been informed he was charged with these murders. It wasn't like he was clueless of why he was in prison, but he couldn't quite understand why people thought he was this big mobster, this big mob hitman, because that's basically what the police were saying, that he is a mob hitman responsible for two major hits. So the inmates were coming up to him and wanted to know how much he got paid and who his boss was and who he knew. You know, and, you know, if you did this and you definitely know so-and-so. And And he's like, no, I don't know (laughs) so-and-so. And that was the dark comedy, the surreal situation. He found himself in prison. His lawyer ended up asking uh, the court to move him because he was in jail in Hamilton. And as we said, the Musitano name is extremely well known in Hamilton. And, uh, you know, as many people love him as probably hates him. He felt he was in a pretty precarious situation. He was moved to a much smaller facility further away. He felt pretty precarious being exposed like that. And he still does. You know, and that's part of his motivation for speaking with me because he does feel like his name will always be associated with these murders. And there will always be people that think he got away with it. How does he feel now that he's been cleared? He's trying to get his life back on track. What, what are his thoughts looking back on the whole ordeal and how he goes forward from here? 
Well, he's thrilled to be out and he's thrilled to be cleared, but he's also feels um, pretty bitter uh, about the situation he was put in. And he understands that he's responsible for a lot of it, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, he says, you know, I take responsibility for, I made some really bad decisions. He wanted to pass along a warning to other uh, young men that may be circling the underworld. You know, don't make the mistakes I made. He goes, you have to pay attention to the people around you, the people you associate with, the, the circle that you trust. And he says, I, I trusted the wrong circle. He got involved in something that he had no perception that could have possibly lead to where he did. So he understands that, but he also feels fairly bitter that he had to stage, you know, during COVID, no less, in custody for so long, when on paper, he had a pretty good case for bail. His lawyer had to appeal multiple times for bail, apply for bail and appeal those decisions. They won one and then the Crown appealed and had it overturned. And they felt that they were particularly targeted by the police and the prosecution. And they suspect it's because they let the two other suspects go, right? It was a huge task force. They had three suspects. The evidence against two was stronger than the evidence against the third, yet the only one they got in the end was the driver. Mm -hmm. And what they had hoped to draw from their investigation, I understand, and part of the reason why they probably let the others leave, was that they wanted to get Mr. Big. That none of these three, the police say, are the sort of the, the boss, the controlling mind. None of these three were the ones that created the need to do them. And they wanted that. They wanted the boss. They wanted the Mr. Big. They wanted the organizing mind, the mafia boss or the organized crime figure, presumably, that sort of set all these dominoes in motion. And at least so far, they haven't got him. Now, what of the other two co-accused? Where are Daniel Tomasetti and Michael Cudmore? Michael Cudmore is dead. It's a dangerous world he was involved in. When he fled to Mexico, he went to join a mob figure named Danny Ranieri, you know, a real deal involved with the mafia guy who was also a fugitive from Canada in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Both Danny Ranieri was murdered in Mexico and then, uh, and then Michael Cudmore was murdered in Mexico. So, you know, it's a dangerous world, a dangerous life. Uh, he paid that price. Daniel uh, Tomasetti is unknown. A lot of people suspect he's also been killed in Mexico. There's certainly no evidence of that. His family haven't reported him last I checked as a missing person, although they tell police that uh, they've had no contact with him. And the other advantage uh, Tomasetti has over Cudmore is that he owned a travel agency. And his specialty in the travel business was uh, yacht charters out of Mexico and Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he might be in a position to, to make a go of the run. I think that's the place where the police are focusing. I mean, they're not, they're not assuming that he's dead, that I'm aware of. He, and there's an active search. He's an active arrest warrant, international arrest warrant for his arrest. Do we know what the motive was behind these killings? Why, why Angelo Musitano and Severio Serrano were targeted? Specifically and directly, no. I mean, there's lots of theories. There's some good guesses. Both were connected to very sort of active or at least previously active organizations and, and events that were the heavy hitters, so to speak. And leading up to it and afterwards, there's been an awful lot of mob violence in the GTHA, as they say, the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area. And, you know, what specific role this played in that, um, I don't know. I'm still waiting to know for sure. I've got some ideas, but uh, it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I mean, the bottom line is in the underworld – you make friends and you make enemies and you can never really jump to conclusions on who might have the, there could be lots of people motivated to kill you, but that doesn't necessarily mean they, they were the ones that killed you. 
Well, it's fascinating stuff, Adrian. Always a pleasure to have you on. Well, I appreciate your interest very much. 10-3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. 